Crossway Church Sermon Audio. And they lived happily ever after. It's a comforting phrase, isn't it? It's that phrase or some adaptation of it that ends a few fairy tales, a few popular ones. Did you know that some people have great concern about that phrase? I found this out by checking on the internets. They say it's basically lying because no one ever lives happily ever after. And that's not a bad point. If your entire frame of reference is this life. For Christians, however, there is something more to it. We recognize something right and good in that phrase, happily ever after. That phrase encapsulates the longing of the human heart, a final rest where hardships cease and give way to the fulfillment of the gift of life itself. That fulfillment is to know and delight in and worship and be in the presence of the giver of life forever. It's to be with Jesus. I'm bringing up the happily ever after idea because of where we need to go today. Right off the bat, Isaiah the prophet is going to hit us with some sobering truths. I almost feel a little bad because we just came out of Jude, and that was some sobering truth as well. But this is good. We're going to be in Isaiah for a while, and it's God's Word, and it's good. Actually, Isaiah is writing to his countrymen at the time, right? And God has a a hard message for those Israelites. God is telling Israel of his impending judgment on them, and it is frightening. It's important for us to understand God's message to them, because God's message to them teaches us God's perspective on issues we face. In other words, God's message to them is also God's message to us. But... While it is indeed sobering and even frightening, let us note and not miss that God's words are not simply words of judgment. In fact, God never ends His work with only judgment. He never ends His work with only judgment. Do you know why? Because that's who He is. Oh, He he judges. He brings wrath upon rebellion. But He loves to give life. He loves to restore. He loves to bless and to forgive. Think of the story of Noah's ark. Irresistible. Dark waves of water destroyed everyone on the earth. God, fed up with sin, wiped the face of the earth clean, right? Almost right. God judged sin. And His judgment was terrible. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on. God preserves righteous Noah and his family, and through them he restarts the human race. You see, whether it's Noah, or Isaiah chapter 1, or humanity in our times, or Crossway Church itself, the Lord... I'll take that first slide, please. Thank you, Kurt. I know we're, we're getting back into this thing. The Lord will not tolerate impurity forever. But judgment is never His final act. The Lord will not tolerate impurity forever. But judgment is never His final act. He's he's not going to put up with sin forever. Whether that sin is in the world or in His people, in us, in our church, there's going to be an end to that. God will purify His people. But even while God puts an end to sin, 
God's work doesn't end there. So the Lord's not going to tolerate impurity forever, but judgment is never his final act. Let's look at God's attitude toward his people in a three-point breakdown of this text, okay? So first of all, rebellion is insanity. Rebellion is insanity. You probably heard that adage that comes from the business world. Not sure if it's from the business world. I think it must be. But it goes like this. Insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting a different result. That's a good principle, but an even more insane thing to do is to rebel against God. And to do that repeatedly. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 1, 1 through 9. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. I'm going to break it down over the three points, so just keep your finger there and ready to read. And I would ask that you would follow along because it will help you. Um, it's easy to tune out in these moments. Like, oh, he's just reading the Bible. What do you mean? That's the time to pay attention, right? When he's reading the Bible. All right, let's read the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, when he saw, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The picture here is that God's people have fallen so far away from God that they may not even realize that they're in rebellion. They might not even recognize it. But the curses for their sins, foretold in Moses' law, really right there for them to see in Deuteronomy, have fallen on them so they should be able to see their plight. Think of this. They should have been able to recognize that their country is desolate. Their cities burned with fire and that foreigners are encroaching at will because they have been rebellious against God. Now we know that not all suffering stems from the consequences of rebellion, right? We know this. Sometimes God's people suffer precisely because they are walking righteously. So, we must not conclude that if someone is suffering, it is because they are in Sin. So in other words, you and I aren't to look at other people and immediately come to the conclusion, like, oh, there's something difficult in their life, oh, they're suffering, therefore they are sinning. But for ourselves, for ourselves, you and I know if we're living in sin, and if we're living in sin, but shocked that there are consequences of the sin around us, of the sin that's come upon us, if there are consequences for that sin and we're shocked, 
That's kind of insane, isn't it? To be shocked that there'd be consequences for sin. We know if we're living in sin. And, and to be shocked that there are consequences, that's kind of insane. Unfortunately, this is not uncommon. We are all tempted when we do wrong to blame others or to blame God rather than take responsibility ourselves. This plays out in the, in the world over and over and over again. Unfortunately, it plays out in the church over and over and over and over again. When we're tempted, when we do wrong, to bl- when we're tempted, when we do wrong, and we blame others, we blame God, we're like children that disobey our parents. And then when we get into trouble, we blame our parents for, for the trouble that's come upon us rather than take responsibility. We, we do the same thing as children. We do the same thing as teens. In their rebellion, we do it with God. Remember the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. The son took his inheritance and spent it on all the worldly pleasures he could. Then he was broke and his new friends left him. He was alone and without help. He takes a job feeding pigs and he's so hungry that the pig slop looks good to him. Now let me ask, would it not be insane for him to stay in that condition? Of course it would be insane. Far better for him to repent to his father where he will find mercy. And that's just what he does in Jesus' story. And that's just what you and I ought to do. Now, we're not the same. The church today, we're not the same as ancient Israel. But this principle holds true. Think about this. When we sin, does sin, does that sin remain purely a a pleasure forever? Is it just fun all the time to keep on sinning? Of course not. Does immorality lead to a healthy, happy, satisfying life? You're a huge liar if you say it does. It absolutely does not. It leads to destruction every time. What about complaining? Does complaining produce a happy person, the kind you just want to be around? Of course not. How about being a busybody? Making something that's not your business or responsibility something that you major in. Has that ever resulted in joy? Of course not. By definition, it can't. How about a pattern of harsh words rather than gentle words? Does that bring about appreciation and deeper relationship? Of course not. Gentle words, being gentle is a fruit of the Spirit. And making a pattern of harsh words is the opposite of that. We could go on and on. And the point is that our sin is rebellion against God and brings with it desolation every time. Notice God's attitude in this. He is appalled by how foolish His people are. Even the ox and the donkey know. And they follow. And they appreciate their master. But somehow God's people ignore Him. They don't know Him and they don't listen to Him. We're not immune to this. We can do it too. And we're in patterns of sin. When we're stuck in sin, the consequences all, all around us, we, we, we dull ourselves. And we continue to experience the consequences. Rebellion is insanity. And I think God wants to wake us up. The Lord will not tolerate impurity forever. But judgment is never His final act. We've seen that rebellion against God is insane. But we need to keep pressing in to see how God thinks about these things. So now we're going to see 
that piety can be corrupt. Piety can be corrupt. A seminary professor used to challenge his students to one day read the following text as a call to worship. He was being tongue-in-cheek, and you'll see why rather quickly. But as I read verses 10 to 20, try to imagine having, having this read to you as part of the original audience. audience. Imagine being part of the original audience, God's people, Israel, and having the prophet preach this to you or having someone read it to you later. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. Verses 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Note the tone God is taking with these insanely rebellious and dull Israelites. In verse 10, he calls them the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a rather huge insult, right? God's trying to wake them up to their own rebellion. Do you know how God... And by the way, I think we need that from time to time, right? We need to be awakened if we're dull, if we're in sin, if we're in rebellion, yet we're dull. We need to be awakened. It's the best thing for us. And do you know how God's people at this time were trying to remedy their situation? They are tired of being overrun, not having any security, not having any prosperity. And so they see that and they know they want to fix it. But do you know how they sought to fix it? How did they seek to fix it? They sought to fix the problem by being obedient to religious ritual. Religious ritual. Now the rituals they sought to keep to remedy things they were the right rituals. They had received ceremonial religious rituals from Moses, and they wanted to keep those rituals. So they reasoned, if we keep those rituals, then God will be good with us. But God wasn't good with them. And so he says things to them like, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, you might, not even, you might as well not even bother to come to the temple. And he said, and God says, bring no more vain offerings. And, and God says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I, I will not listen. That's what God says to them. 
Wow, that's amazing. What's the problem here? You can almost hear the Israelites saying, God, you gave us these rituals. Why are you rejecting them? We're obeying you. Why aren't you receiving them? Do you know what the problem is? Here's the problem. They're seeking to manipulate God. So let's take it a step further. In the, in the worship of idols, the pagans would approach their gods in the same way. They'd approach them with religious rituals. You know, light the fire, burn the sacrifice, pour the water, eat the meal, light, light or burn the incense, or maybe dance around, maybe chant some things, maybe some other rituals. That's what the pagans would do. The point is this. Everything they did was based on the earthly elements as they understood them at that time. Why? Why did the pagans do that? Because they believed that the gods were part of the universe. And as part of this universe, if you manipulated the material elements of the universe just right, you would get the results you wanted. Kind of like a rain dance. They believed, think about this, they believed in formulas. Let's say it like this. They believed in algorithms. You plug in the right inputs, then you get the right outputs. You see how that works? You manipulate the elements just right, and the elements work for you. God works for you. Now we see the problem more clearly. They're not interacting with God as worshipers coming to the almighty person of God. Instead, they're interacting with God like scientists interact with material in a lab. And maybe their scientific method is off these ancient pagans, but their logic is the same. And in this sense, the person doing the ritual becomes greater, becomes the greater one And the one reacting to the manipulation is the lesser one. Now how, we can imagine, will God respond to being treated like that? Like an algorithm. Like an element of the material, natural world. Like someone who can be manipulated. We don't have to imagine. We have it here. God's not happy about it. And yet, as offensive as their attempts to manipulate God are... The Lord seeks to steer them right. He says, don't try to manipulate me with your religious rituals. Instead, turn from your heart. Repent. Turn away from your sin. And trust me, brothers and sisters, I'm afraid we can do this too. God, God must help us. He has to help us. Sometimes we participate in the life of the church so that God will cut us some slack. Sometimes we do a good deed so that we can balance out the sin that we've been hiding. Sometimes we implement spiritual discipline so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, See, I'm still a Christian. Just like the ancient Israelites, the Lord is not fooled by our attempts to manipulate Him by replacing ritual with repentance. It is important to note, dear friend, God is not telling them that the religious rituals He gave to the Old Covenant community were unimportant. They were important. Just as coming together as a church body and singing and and hearing God's Word proclaimed and going into our prayer closet and, and bringing out the Bible and coming to the Lord's table like we'll be doing today, all of those things are very important. God's not saying those things aren't important. 
Rather, God is saying, start by putting away sin and walking uprightly before me. Then your rituals will be the worship that they are meant to be and will be a blessing in your life. The Lord will not tolerate impurity forever, but judgment is never His final act. And we've now seen that God regards rebellion as insanity and that if piety is corrupt, then He sees right through it. But there's something else we need to see about our God. And that's this. Restoration is inevitable. Restoration is inevitable. You've probably already noticed that verses 18 and 19 struck a tone of reconciliation with God. A powerful tone. They said, come now. Let us reason together. A better translation may be, let us argue together. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. In other words, if you respond to the Lord, if you walk uprightly before Him, He'll take your sins away. The whole idea here is that if you really trust the Lord, then you'll follow Him in the only way that truly truly honors Him, from the heart with works that demonstrate your faith. But right here, even in the scathing rebuke over sin, which may be the longest and strongest in all the prophets, right here are these words of grace. The Lord is reaching out to His rebellious people so that they can be saved so that they can be turned from their sin and made pure in Him. And as I read the next portion, you'll see strong words again. But keep an eye out for God's desire to restore. So as I read verses 21 through 31, keep an eye out because you're going to see God's desire to restore, God's willingness and God's inevitability of restoration to His people. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21 and following. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. Now, didn't you think there was just going to be destruction right there? But instead, he he says, I'm I'm going to remove your dross. This is going to be hard. I'm going to remove your dross, though. Verse 26 And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. 
Notice that part of what God has against the Israelites at this point is not only their immorality and their idolatry, but it is also a lack of justice. There is the idea of the widow and the fatherless being mistreated and the Israelites failing to uphold them. They're out in the community and they're mistreated. They're poor. They have nothing. They can't get justice in the causes. If people mistreat them, why can't they get justice? Well, because in general, orphans and widows have very little to offer. They have very little power. They're, they're not well networked. In general, they have no access to the halls of power. And so in these cases, people take advantage of them and say, well, no one can stop me from taking advantage of them. So I will take it advantage of them. And that's the crux of injustice. No one can stop me from taking advantage, so I'll take advantage. If someone takes advantage of them, steamrolls them, it's unlikely that they'll get justice in a corrupt society. Now, you and I have to keep in mind that we're not ancient Israel or Judah. It's not the same as the church today. Ancient Israel is not the same as the church today. Israel was a nation state. Their laws necessarily extended through worship, through into the civil government. But that's not true of the church today. The church law does not extend into civil law. We don't have power over the magistrate, and that's probably a very good thing. We're not trying to turn the United States into ancient Israel. That would be futile, and it would be wrong-headed. So our, primarily ap- our primary application is not to the community, it's for us, it's to the church itself. We are to make certain that impartiality is held to in our church among our members. All of our members, great or small, minority ethnicity or majority ethnicity, poor or rich, must be treated with justice and love. Don't be like, as James talks about, the person who makes room, saves a seat for the rich person, but refuses to do so for the poor. Don't, let's not be a church where someone who doesn't know many people, their name is not called often, and they sit on the outside, that we just let them remain there. But let justice flow at Crossway Church. Impartiality is a critical part of our life together. It's a critical part of how we honor God in our midst. And at the end of the day, it's love, isn't it? To be impartial. Now, we do have the structure of government in our society that allows for our voice and our vote. And that is a gift. It really is. We've talked about that. And we do know that righteousness benefits a people. So we do take a knowledge of the truth, God's truth, biblical truth, and we seek to apply it even in voting. And that may seem like a complex thing to do, and I I don't want to spend too much time on it right now because voting is not where we find life, as Steve so helpfully laid out to us. It's good. It's important. I think it's part of being a good Christian is being a good citizen, and in the United States that means voting. But voting is not where we find life. So it's not the most important thing, but it's not unimportant. And so we do encourage you to vote and to take part in this society. 
Now moving on, you may know that Jerusalem, or Zion, which was a name for the mountain that Jerusalem sat on, Zion, did experience some restoration under Hezekiah, the, the king that's mentioned last. So, so it looks like Isaiah ministered for at least 40 years over a span of, of 40 king, uh, four kings. Uh, actually, the, those kings span uh, a period of 100 years, uh, maybe not completely in their reign. And it looks like, it looks like Isaiah started at the end of the, fir- the first one listed and went into Hezekiah's day. In fact, it, uh, Jewish tradition says that uh, Isaiah was executed by Manasseh, the king that comes after Hezekiah. But we don't have any evidence for that other than the tradition, which might be right. But nonetheless, uh, Isaiah is prophesying through this time. And in uh, Hezekiah's day, that last king, Jerusalem does experience some restoration. So some of what God talks about and restoration in these verses comes true at that time, and Isaiah even probably saw some of it. So he saw some of that. That comes from verses 26 to 27. Further, further on, well, after Isaiah's life, under the Maccabees, Jerusalem and Israel did experience some restoration and some freedom in the intertestamental period. That's the 400 years be- between Malachi and the incarnation of Christ. And and, and so before the Greeks came and then the Romans, uh, Israel actually uh, got its independence for a period and there was some restoration of the law of God and the ways of God in Jerusalem. But these were partial and they were temporary. And of course, our God is aiming at the ultimate restoration of His people. And so for now, we need to see something very important about our God. Our God is a Savior He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. That's who he is in his nature and it is his orientation. It is his demeanor toward us. And even when he's meeting out judgment for sin, he has a plan to save his people. And woe to those that come under his judgment. And all who are under his judgment should cry out for mercy. He will not turn you away. But for all his people, we should know this. God is working and is committed to seeing your dross removed and to deliver you to the city of righteousness. And don't forget how this all ends. The entire end, the entire age ends with judgment, but not only judgment. The Bible itself ends. If you look at those last few chapters of Revelation, it's primarily an emphasis on the words of promise being fulfilled to God's people. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.